Turn in Colossians. We're in chapter 1. We're going to wrap chapter 1 up today. Uh, Bibles are in the back. They're in the back corner. Um, we move, we're moving stuff around. As you can tell, a lot going on. Um, so just be careful walking around with your kids. You want to take a look through the building, that'd be great. Uh, the back doors are locked, the new gathering space. When this walks come down, you'll be like, whoa. Uh, I've got 35 more feet in a couple of weeks, hopefully opening up. Uh, and it'll be uh, a time for... Uh, rejoicing in what God is doing as we make room, not for our fame, but for the glory of Jesus, so the gospel will go out to more and more people. Amen? All right, turn Colossians chapter 1, our sermon series this summer, or the beginning of this summer, uh, we're going to be looking at Isaiah in, in next month, but it is called The Supremacy and Sufficiency of Christ. As we study the book of Colossians together, this little book of four chapters really is a, a, a book full of the glory and beauty of Jesus. It is highly Christological. What I mean by that, Christological means the, the teaching about the, in this book is about the person and the work of Jesus. His nature as God himself, as man, as fully man, and the gospel, his, his penal substitutionary atonement, his resurrection from the grave, all the beauty and glory really of Christ is shown in the book of Colossians. It's been a great study so far, and I'm looking forward to what God's going to do as we continue to study together. We left off in chapter 1, verse 23, so we will start today in chapter 1, verse 24 through verse 29. That's where we're at this morning. I'll read from the ESV, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, through the end of the chapter that ends in verse 29. Hear the word, authoritative, infallible, inspired word of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And God had a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. We know the letter written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle wrote 13 New Testament letters. And he wrote this letter to a community of believers in the city of Colossae. Not a tremendously important city of its day, but still an important city in the sense that it had a church in it. A gospel witness declaring and demonstrating the gospel, salt and light to the earth. The man responsible for this church plant was Epaphras, who apparently was either, like I said, the church planter or at least one of the leaders in this small congregation. He had visited Paul while in Rome, while Paul was under arrest in Rome. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter because they're experiencing false teaching, false doctrine about the person and the work of Jesus Christ the Lord. It's very important, he believes, and I'm glad he does, that, they would, that he would write this letter to defend the truth, to, to contend for the gospel. His name is Jesus. They were teaching that Jesus was not supreme and all-sufficient to know God, to be in the right standing with God. They, they started well with the gospel, with Christ, the truth of the gospel, and now these false teachers were coming in and saying, hey, look, you need something more. You need, you need to learn something more, a deeper faith, a deeper knowledge, a deeper experience of God's power, and we can give that to you. They were teaching legalism, ritualism, asceticism, teaching all kinds of strange things we'll see in chapter 2, including the worship of angels. So Paul is setting forth the truth of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, that there is no one and there is nothing outside of Christ that you and I need to know in order to know God, in order to experience God, in order to grow in a deeper relationship with God. Paul begins by laying the groundwork of his authority, his apostle, verse 1. According to the will of God the Father. Was Jesus sent them by the will of God the Father. And after a brief introduction, how thankful he is 
that God is working in and through them, that the gospel has not only been received by them, but we learned it's increasing in bearing fruit in every good work. That's in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Then verse 13, he gives thanks to God the Father. Verse 12, he gives thanks to God the Father, who has delivered us from the domain of darkness. The Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we in whom, that's Jesus, we, that's us, have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And from there we saw last week that Paul launched, launched into a teaching on the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. A refutation of the false teachers who were denying the deity of Christ, denying the supremacy, denying the sufficiency of Christ. That Jesus is some sort of spirit or some sort of being like any other spirit, any other being maybe equal to or even less than, but he makes it very clear. Jesus alone can reconcile sinful men to a holy God. Paul, we saw last week, said that Christ is greater than all things. He's far beyond all created things, for he is Lord of creation. So that last week. All things were made by him and through him and for him, and in him all things hold together. Can't say it any more succinctly than that. He has authority over his creation. He has authority over the new creation, the church, being the firstborn from the dead, giving him supremacy and authority over the universe. We see that in verse 20. 18, 19, and 20 actually speak of Christ's fullness. It says, In Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him he, Jesus, reconciled all of creation, and reconciles sinners to himself through the blood of the cross. We said last week, the entire cosmos has its beginning and its end. And its consummation is grounded and centered on Christ and the work of Christ in his reconciliation on his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. It's a, an enormous statement that should change all the way we think and live. We ended last week with these encouraging words, Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. He tells the people to continue, press on, continue, steadfast, stable, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And now Paul moves from the message of Christ on who he is to the ministry of the church. You see that a little bit at the end of verse 23. He says, I, I have been, I have been uh, um, given the proclamation for all creation, or the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, which I, Paul, verse 23, became a minister. So Paul's going to shift from the, the message of the gospel, the work of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus as the message of the gospel to the ministry of the church. The ministry of the church. So, three things. We'll look at the Paul's ministry. The first ministry of suffering, verse 24. Then the ministry of stewardship, we'll see in verses 25, 26, and 27. And then the ministry of sanctification in verses 29, 28 and 29. So that's where we're going. That's where we're headed. So let's look at number one. Paul says in verse 23, I became a minister. And then he says in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh, in my body. I am, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Literal body he talks about in verse 24 in the beginning, and then he's talking metaphorically about the body of Christ, the people of God, that is the church. Now part of this verse is easy to understand, and some parts of this verse is rather hard to understand. Uh, let's begin by what we know Paul is saying, okay? Now Paul is saying very clearly here, he's telling the church that he rejoices in his suffering because it is for their sake. It is the benefit of the church that he should suffer for the church. We learned in verse 18 that Jesus is the head of the church and we're the body of the church, right? So as the head, he has authority over the church. He is its power and source of spiritual life. And Paul says now that his suffering is for the benefit of the body as Christ is the head. And he's not only talking about the church in Colossae, but he's talking about the church in general, the worldwide church as well. I think we first have to remember what God told Ananias. If you're familiar with Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Paul, 
We learn in chapter 9 that God told a man named Ananias to go to Paul. Paul, as you know, had a reputation of killing Christians. Ananias is a believer. God tells Ananias in chapter 9 to go to Paul, and God says, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine. My instrument, I've chosen him. I'm going to be using him as an instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him, God speaking, I will show him, that's the apostle Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul's causing suffering for the, for the, in the name of Christ, torturing and persecuting, murdering, murdering Christians, and God saves him, converts him, and says, you know what, you're going to suffer a different, uh, you're going to suffer on the other end. And everyone knew, Paul knew, everyone around him knew what this unique suffering that he was going to suffer. God made it clear, you're going to suffer for my name. Even at the time of this writing, we learn that Paul is where? He's in Rome. He's suffering. He's under house arrest for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the Gentile mission as a non-Jew, for, for the Gentile churches that he was planting. And Paul suffered as he planted churches in Gentile territory, in, in pagan territory. And when he was planting churches, it brought reaction persecution from Jews and Gentiles. Like everywhere Paul went, just read the book of Acts, he was being persecuted beat up, dragged out for dead, busted with rocks and, and dragged out of different cities. And it seemed that he was being persecuted um, from two, two angles, right? He, he suffered the attacks of those who he was trying to reach with the gospel in the Gentile uh, world, and he suffered the hands of his kindred, the Jewish people, who sought to stop the advancement of the gospel. Either way, he was turning. Paul was being persecuted. Yet Paul rejoiced at what God was doing in the churches, how believers were, were gaining courage and faith by watching Paul's example. Family, people watch us when we suffer. People watch us as we work through, which is normal and right, suffering. As we continue to walk with Jesus, gaining courage and strength and leaning on him, Trusting in his word. People see that. And can be encouraged by that. Suffering for the advancement of the kingdom. Suffering, I would add, even for personal holiness is part of the Christian life. And the scripture teaches us it's because of the purposes of God that we can rejoice in our suffering. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul explains a lot of what he's been going through. The floggings imprisonment, shipwreck, 24 hours drifting out at sea, starvation. But why endure all this hardship? Why endure all this hardship? Paul's answer is simple here. He says he's doing it for you, Colossians. Despite he never met them. He didn't plant the church. He's doing it because it is part and parcel of Christ's commission to him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That's why he is glad to do it. More than just glad, he rejoices in the suffering. Now you may say, you know what, if, if you're suffering and you're rejoicing in it, is that, you know, you have a serious psychological disorder, right? I, I don't think Paul is, is rejoicing in suffering itse itself, but in the context, in the purposes of his suffering. Right? We don't rejoice in just suffering like, you know, some sort of masochist, right? We just, it, it's re rejoicing in suffering because... Our faith, the word of God and our faith says that suffering that God brings in our life is purposeful. There is joy in suffering because it brings us closer to Christ. If anyone has ever suffered, they know that it drives them to their knees, crying out to God. And the nearness and the closeness of God is so real in those times of suffering. Bible tells us in 1 Peter 4 that it is the assurance of our salvation when we suffer for Christ. Listen, God uses suffering to advance the gospel. God uses suffering to grow in holiness. God uses suffering to encourage others to walk with us and to grow in Christ and to trust him more. Here's something else I want us to consider this morning about Suffering, joyful suffering. 
Joyful suffering is a byproduct of humility. Of humility. Experiencing joy in the midst of suffering can only happen if we are humbled and stay humbled by the gospel. Paul was able to suffer joyfully because he was keenly aware of his depravity and what his sin and his rebellion against God would mean. Eternal separation from God in hell and and just wrath against him. But he also knew the greatest treasure is the gospel. His name is Jesus who took his just wrath upon himself. Paul's wrath upon himself paid the penalty for his sins. Died in his place on the cross out of love and grace. Nothing he could do to deserve it. Everything Paul received in his life, therefore, he says, is a matter of grace. In fact, if you show me someone who deserves to be blessed, who does not deserve to suffer, I'll show you someone who is full of pride who will never have joy in the midst of suffering. Well, we don't deserve it. We think we're better than that. We we, we should be dealt a better hand than the one we have been dealt. Paul kept his joy because he knew anything that came his way, including suffering, was something much more than he felt worthy to receive. So Paul is saying that persecution itself is not good. What's good is what God is doing in and through our suffering. And Paul's hardship, his his suffering is to advance the gospel, to encourage growth in the church, the body of Christ. And maybe you're facing suffering today for the gospel, disrespected, ignored, made fun of. Maybe you, you know, face severe opposition, like being attacked verbally, even physically. Joy and suffering is found in humility and the purpose of God. The question is, will you trust him in the midst of suffering? Will you trust him in the midst of suffering? Will you glorify him in the midst of suffering that that Jesus is enough? He's sufficient. He's supreme over all things. He's enough for you. Now notice what else Paul says here. This is the harder verse to interpret, part to interpret. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. Okay? We know what he does not mean. We know that he does not mean that somehow his suffering, his physical suffering on the earth adds to the atonement of Jesus. The suffering and the sufficiency of the work of Christ on the cross. How Jesus forgives us of all our sins. Because everywhere else in all of scripture, including this letter, Paul is convinced of the sole and complete sufficiency of Christ. His atoning work. He spoke about it already. The reconciliation through the body, the blood of the cross. That's the whole point of the letter. And if Paul is saying, look, the atonement is not sufficient, then he is just really supporting the false teachers of that day. And obviously he's not doing that. While Jesus was on the cross, he said what? It is finished. And he meant it. It is finished. So what does he mean? What does he mean when he says, you know, filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction can't add or take away from the work of the cross the sufficiency of the gospel. I think the key to that passage is found in Acts again, chapter 9, at his conversion. If you know the story, Paul is on the road to Damascus with a letter. He's persecuting, murdering Christians. Jesus comes along, knocks him off the horse, and the thing that, and and what's, what's amazing is Paul says to this blinding light after he gets up, right, who are you, Lord? You remember what Jesus said to him? Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It teaches us about the union we have with Christ by the Spirit of God. Paul was not persecuting Jesus per se, physically. He was persecuting the people of God. That when Christians are being persecuted in a real way, in a spiritual way, so is Christ. Lewis Johnson from I think it's Dallas and Trinity. He passed away. He says this. It is no wonder then that Paul rejoiced in his suffering seen in the light of his union with Christ. They were transfigured and made an occasion for fellowship with him as well as a benefit to the body, the church, end quote. 
What is lacking in Christ's bodily presence is filled up by Paul's bodily suffering in his flesh as a member of the body of Christ. I think we could say, therefore, that Christ's continuing suffering in the world is done through the people of God, the, 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 the servants of God, the children of God. And although the specific forms of Paul's affliction may be unique to him, the, the, the forms of it, but the nature the hatred of the gospel, uh, uh, the occurrence that we're going to be persecuted, I think that's for all of us to expect. It's part of faithfully serving him. I think one of the ways, and we'll move on to the next point here, one of the ways we can, we can see this, understand this, is that the suffering of Paul and the suffering we endure as believers, it's a benefit to the, to the body of Christ, is not a suffering that's, that's greater qualitatively. In other words, not, not suffering that's greater in worth. Only Jesus can suffer for the atonement of sins. That is of, of infinite worth. It's not qualitatively, it's quantitatively. In other words, the, as believers are being born again and joining the body of Christ, thousands upon thousands of people are being tortured and suffering for Christ. The ministry of suffering. Next, the ministry of stewardship, verse 25. So I became a minister for the church according to the stewardship, notice that, from God that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages, generation, now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What a glorious calling. A call to suffer and minister to the people of God, the body of Christ, the flock of God, the children of God, as a minister of the gospel. There's a story told about R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul had this exchange with one of his students. And Sproul said, I remember the day. I remember a starry-eyed college student, seminary student, who looked at me and said in wonderment, what is it like for you when you were just a minister, he says, I lost it. I exploded in indignation. What do you mean just a minister, Sproul says? Don't you realize that the parish ministry is the highest calling on earth? He tells the young man. He says to the young man, God had only one son, and he made him a preacher. End quote. Now, Sproul is known for his humor, and I'm sure he was jesting with the little lad, but I'm sure he was probably a little serious too, about the ministry of the gospel, the calling of the gospel. He says, I am a minister. It's actually the word where we get deacon or diakonos, a servant. He's, he is called to serve the church as a church planter, as a proclamation and a, a proclaimer of the word of God. He's been commissioned, look what it says, as a steward. Interesting word, it means a household manager. Paul's been called to, to be a manager of God's household. The church, the people of God. He was called to steward, to commission, and commission, excuse me, given the responsibility to carry out the assignments of his master, the owner, Jesus himself. Not something he chose. Not something he was, that, that he called himself to. God called him as a minister of the gospel. That's what pastoral calling is. A call from God. I remember when I came to faith in 1987, just gobbling up the word of God, just loved it, loved the truth it was being revealed to me, and I remember just having a desire to see people come to faith, and it's really a desire to see people free, walking with Jesus, loving Jesus, freed from addictions, freed from, from bondage, it's just the, the calling, it's just wanting people free. So I began to teach an adult Sunday school class at another church. And then in the mid-90s, I heard about a school that had started for undergrad program uh, for old guys like me who already had a career. So I decided to take some classes because I just wanted to teach the Bible better. I wanted to be accurate. I wanted to be, I wanted to be sure and, and interpret well. And uh, I began to take some classes in, in Schenectady. And I remember reading Matthew, and I remember where I was at Albany Med working in the, with the Department of Corrections. And I remember reading this verse. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, 
The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And I remember the Lord pressing on my heart, pastoral ministry. And I remember my first reaction, no. But God began to open doors. God began to work in my heart. And God began to really press in those truths that truth into my life and, and the body of Christ and the people of God and the church and the gifts of the God's given me um, was a call. It was that call to pastor church. I didn't know where I was going to go. I didn't know what the future held, but here I am all these years later. And in, and in many ways, all of us are stewards of the ministry of the word. All of us are to take what God gives us, the talents, the gifts, the abilities, and the opportunities and use it for his glory in the work of gospel ministry as good stewards. We're all called to be good stewards. Paul's ministry of stewardship among the Gentiles was to bring the preaching of the word to completion. Look what it says. To make the word of God fully known. Remember the, 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 the heresies, the false teachings in Colossae. That there's this higher mystical knowledge that only uh, a, a few people knew this fullness of knowledge was, was something you needed to be part of this distinct group. Therefore, Paul, when Paul wrote of making God's word fully known to all the believers, he was pointing out once again that God's word is not only for all his people to know, but is sufficient for all his people. Not only for all to know, but sufficient for us. To preach the whole counsel of God in his word. They have all the wisdom and spiritual insight they need to re be redeemed and to grow in Christ. Look at verse 26. Paul speaks of this mystery that's been now uh, unveiled, revealed. A mystery in the, in, the, in the scripture doesn't mean something only a few know. It, it, it's, it's, it's a mystery of something that was not completely known but now something that has been revealed, that's made known to us, has become more clear. And we know Paul, who's an Old Testament scholar, when he came to faith and his eyes were opened to the truth by the Spirit of God, he saw all the pictures and all the foreshadowing of all the Old Testament points to the person and work of Jesus. <laughs> we cannot learn this mystery on our own. We need the word of God, we, I mentioned this last week, God is not knowable unless he's made himself known. And he's made himself known to Paul through the scriptures and now us through the Old and New Testament. Paul says, well, Jesus is all over the place. And there it is, the mystery to, to letting people know the, the, the word of God. What was hidden or at least not seen very clear is now seen. Verse uh, the word mystery is found again in verse 27 of chapter 1 and verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, we'll look at next week. And this mystery we know is Christ. It was hidden before, it's been revealed in Christ. Paul now sees it and he's been given, he's been given the task of making the mystery known. And what's interesting also is not just make known the gospel, but look here, there's a specific feature that Paul is, to be, to, to, that Paul is told to tell others, to make known to others. And that's God's inclusion, inclusion of the Gentiles in his redemptive plan. Verse 27. To them God chose to make known, right, this mystery is being made known, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Right? Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, remember he wrote Ephesians same time he wrote Colossians, he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And it's been given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That, that, that's, that's the message, to bring the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then Ephesians goes on to say, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for God, for hidden for ages in God who created all things. In other words, it's been known, it's been seen, and now it's been really revealed through the preaching of the gospel. And what is it? The Gentiles, along with the Jews, 
this mystery, this united work of God in the gospel is for all people, right? He's the redeemer of all nations, and now that's been fully known. I mean, Abraham got a glimpse in the Old Testament. We see prophets, priests, and kings all got somewhat of glimpses of the gospel. There were the shadows, there's, there's pointers everywhere, but it was the apostles who lived and ministered with Jesus who saw the, the, Jesus' resurrection, who understood that this <laughs> needs to be known. This is now what we saw as a, as, as, as a shadow now is fully known. Instead of being just for them, as the other people were proclaiming it, the other false teachers, it's for the entire world. So we are a people who are not ashamed of the gospel. We are a people who are proclaiming his word. We're not a secret sect that we have closed meetings and and only a few can come in. We want the word of God to be preached and proclaimed to every single creature, making the word of God known and revealed to all the saints. How great... Among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this ministry. Uh, excuse me, mystery. Bruce Barton, in his commentary, some of the community group leaders have it, says this, God's mystery is not a puzzle to solve. Okay? God's mystery is not a puzzle to solve. Instead, it is like a treasure chest filled with glorious riches and is available to anyone who looks for it. Those riches are the hope of glory Eternity with God the Father, end quote. Now look what it says. What's the mystery? Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. (laughs) Status, union with Christ, his presence in us secures our hope, provides us with confidence and assurance of the glorious wealth, the future inheritance that Paul talked about in verse 12. And 13, that we have received, Jews and Gentiles together by identifying with the Jesus who's the Messiah, Christ in them, they are in Christ together, share the hope of glory. Romans chapter 9. Now, let me, let me explain to you why this was earth-shattering. For most of us here are Gentiles, non-Jews, but for the Jewish people, why this was earth-shattering, mystery-unveiling. Okay, Romans chapter 9, verse 4 says this. The Israelites, they're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. See, belongs to Israel. But it was never always that case. They were to be light and salt to the nations. And then Paul comes along and says, the mystery's been revealed. The hope of glory's been revealed. And it was shocking to many of the Jewish people. But that was Paul's mystery reveal. Christ, the hope of glory, is Christ alone. And it was good news. He was rejoicing in it. He, he was thankful that this revelation, this, this unveiling of this mystery was given to him, that he can go into all the world, every nation, tongue, and tribe, and share the good news of Christ, calling all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel, even if it cost him an enormous amount of suffering, he rejoiced. Rejoicing because he was brought into the work of God, participating in this plan of salvation for the world among the Gentiles. Do we find joy in that? Will the suffering that we, that's ahead of us, behind us, in the midst of, Will we find joy in in the ability to take what's going on in our lives and to be able to share with people who have no hope without Christ? Let me ask you this. Does Christ living in you because of the gospel give you hope? Do you realize that the Holy Spirit's presence in your life, bringing you the presence of Christ into your hearts, was given to you as a gift and as a guarantee, a deposit for your future glory? Does that bring you hope? Ephesians 4.30, by whom, the Holy Spirit of God. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. By whom, the Spirit, you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do we realize that this cosmic Lord, firstborn over all creation, firstborn among the dead, lives and resides within us, giving us our confidence? Now, 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 there, there are two ways that you could possibly veer off. 
from this. You could have hope that's not really grounded in anything, or you could be looking at hope in the wrong way. And let me tell you something else. There's a difference between worldly hope and Christian hope, right? We talked about this before. Worldly hope is like, I'm sure hope it doesn't rain today. (laughs) I hope for a sunny day. I hope for a better job. I hope for gas prices to come down. I mean, those are things, I'm sorry, it slipped out, but maybe it's not to be expected, but Christian hope is of a different hope. Why? Because it's not dependent on anything for you or me or anything around us. Our hope is based on Christ. So there are two ways. You could either seek the wrong hope or seek the right hope in the wrong place. Hoping in something that's not going to happen or trying to get somewhere and going about it the wrong way. That's what the, the, uh, the Colossians false teachers were saying. They're saying, yeah, you can have Christ, you just got to go this way. The only hope is Christ through his word and the gospel. If you, if you don't know Christ, you're here. You've never trusted him. You've never repented of your sins. You're not walking with him. You're not loving him. Then you're dead in your sin. And there's no hope in your sin. But if you trust Christ, if you run to Christ, if you throw yourself upon the Lord, go to him, serve him, love him, trust him, that he is God's plan for you to be redeemed, to have your sins forgiven, then you can have the full hope of the gospel. Then it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. All other hope is is useless, it's empty, it's meaningless. Here's the mystery, Christ in you is the hope of glory. And last, the ministry of sanctification. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, presenting everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, Paul says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul has been called to, to the ministry of suffering. He's living out his calling as a good steward in proclaiming the mystery to the Gentiles and to the world, really, revealing the, the riches of Christ as the hope of glory. And this he says to him he proclaims, means to announce, to declare, speaking of the, the preaching ministry of Paul. And the verbs warning and teaching, excuse me, yeah, warning and teaching all men show us the manner in which Paul's the manner in which Paul is declaring the mystery of Christ and the gospel. He does it with warning and teaching. Interesting words. The word warning, or some of your translation I like better actually, is admonishing. Admonishing. It implies confronting someone with, and the idea is to confront them, to help them focus on the truth, to focus on, you know, on the truth, to change their attitudes, to change their thinking. It's a calling to mind a correct course of action. You know, we all know, right? You could start in the right place and end up in the wrong place. Looking at this back wall reminds me of a time, and Billy's going to laugh, I'm sure. Yeah, you do some tile work. You got everything straight. It's perfectly straight. And then you get about nine rows up, and you sit back, and you go, yeah, that's crooked. Tile's like that. Just ship navigation. They're constantly redirecting and, 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 and constantly readjusting. Well, that's the Christian life, family. We constantly need to keep our focus, to be admonished, to keep our focus on Jesus and the gospel. One of the most important tasks for pastors and elders, pastor elders, is to teach the word, to remind ourselves first and to remind you to keep the focus, stay on course, rehearse the gospel we all need each other to stay on the, the straight and narrow, gather together, encouraging one another, admonishing one another. That's why we meet Sunday morning, and then we meet throughout the week in community groups, admonishing and correcting and, 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 and helping each other stay focused, stay on path. Admonishing and teaching has to do with the, the teaching of biblical truth, so you know how to grow in the gospel about presenting truth and how to walk in the faith. It's not just information. We say this all the time. It's transformation. It's not just targeting information transfer per se, but a life that's being transformed, the maturing in Christ through encountering him in his word with all wisdom. Right? We need wisdom. How do I take this truth? 
How do I take this admonishing and this teaching, and how do I now live it out? We saw in chapter 1, that is pleasing to the Lord, that is bearing fruit in every good work. How do I do that? That's the wisdom we need to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. It's not, it's not, it's not you know... Do, you know, I would love the Christian life to be, hey, do A, B, and C, and you automatically get D, right? But it's work, discipleship, not, not salvation, but discipleship, pleasing, bearing fruit. It's a spirit working in us, right, that's teaching us. Colossians 1.9, knowing the knowledge of his will, being filled with the knowledge of his will, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, right? It's the work of God, but we have responsibility as well. In our efforts to be mature in Christ. We're fully mature, he says in verse 28. In Ephesians, again, speaking of maturity, Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all attain to the unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of stature, the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, to the Ephesian church as well, sound doctrine, truth of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ means right living. That's why he says, in him we proclaim, Paul says. He's the object. And everyone needs to hear. Look what he says again in, in Colossians. In chapter 2, again, we get to the end here. He says, we, um, we proclaim him, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Preaching Christ. George Whitfield, preacher, long time ago, famously said this. Other men may preach the gospel better than I. Other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. That's true. <laughs> the gospel is not some good advice, not a regulation. The gospel is the work of Jesus. That's the message. Warning everyone. No discrimination. Everyone needs to mature in Christ. One of the main purposes of, 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 of pastoral ministry or ministry, gospel ministry is for not only sharing the gospel, people come in the faith, but is to grow in the faith, okay? It's to grow in the faith. See others walk in the freedom in Christ, faith in Christ. The Apostle John said in his third letter, uh, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in truth. Spiritual growth, walking in truth, maturing in Christ is really synonymous with what the scripture calls sanctification, that's maturing in Christ, growing in sanctification. Maturing in Christ is the process of God as he, as he is working in us to conform us, to make us look like Jesus. Romans chapter 8. For those whom he, God the Father, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So sanctification, let's talk about this for a minute, fuses together God's working in us, Man's responsibility in his discipleship and the church is equipping believers to grow in Christ. We find that in Philippians. He says, not uh, to obey, Paul says to the church in, in Philippi, not only my presence, but much more my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not working it in, working it out. For it is God who works in you. So I'm working out my salvation. I'm doing my reading. I'm doing my praying. I'm doing what I need to do. But it's God who works in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Sanctification. Latin word for that, and you've probably heard it before, is sanctus, Greek, hagios. It means to be set apart. A set apart in a negative sense is set apart from sin and positively, positively set apart for God. That's what, that's what sanctification means. And, and let, me just, let me just say this before we wrap it up too. Sanctification, according to the scripture, has two aspects to it. Some of you have heard this before, but let me just remind you. Two aspects. Sanctification has two aspects. There's a time in which we have been sanctified, set apart. It happens instantaneously at our salvation. We've been set apart from the world to God. Just like uh, on the seventh day, God set apart 
and made holy the seventh day. He set it apart. Just like the utensils and furniture of the tabernacle was set apart. They're, they're, they're used not for common things, but for God alone. And there is a sense in which we, as children of God, have been sanctified, set apart. We find that in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says that the unrighteous one will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and that's what were some of you, but you were washed. It happened already. You were sanctified, happened already. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Sanctified, you've been set apart. But that's, not, that, that's one aspect. But what Paul is talking about here is that sanctification process where God is strengthening and developing character that resembles holiness. It's the process of, of, of maturity. And Paul's saying here his mission is helping others mature in Christ to grow in holiness until the day when they are and we are completely sanctified, the day of that presentation, he says, presenting you, the day of Christ's return where we will receive the imperishable, sinless bodies in glory with Christ in his eternal kingdom. And he says, until that day, there's been a sanctification, a salvation, there's a sanctification process in which we're growing in holiness, and then a day will come when we will be done with sin. But until that day, look what he says, I'm toiling I'm struggling, I'm working, toil, struggling powerfully. All three synonymously speaks to the, the work that God is doing. Look at what he says. For this I toil, struggling with all whose energy? His energy. That he powerfully works within me. Aren't you glad it's God that empowers and, and, and strengthens us in our toil, growing in maturity, helping others to grow in maturity? Man, I'm glad it's God doing the work. I'm glad I have my responsibilities, I know. But so much I'm leaning on the Lord. Teach me, show me. What do I say? What don't I say? Now realize this immediate context has a lot to do with pastoral ministry. Pastors, leaders of the church. But there's a lot to take away from this passage for all believers, right? Expect suffering for the gospel. Just expect it. Jesus suffered his disciples suffered. We're going to suffer for the gospel. It may not be the same as your neighbor. It may not be the same as those across the, the seas. But it should not be a surprise. There are countless brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering physical torture, who are under great persecution all over the world. Pray for those in North Korea, Afghanistan, China, parts of Africa, still closed countries. I read uh, this week... In 2021, 360 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution, um, 360 million persecution and uh, discrimination. Almost 6,000 Christians killed for their faith. 5,000 churches attacked. 5,000 believers detained without trial, arrest, sentenced, and imprisoned. It's very real. We should expect... It is well as we stand upon the word. I, I've said this over and over again. We're living in a culture that's anti-gospel, anti-God, and certainly does not want to hear, thus saith the Lord, his word. We must stand upon the truth. We should do so in a way that is loving and kind, declaring and defending the truth, demonstrating the gospel, defending the gospel in love. All of us are in gospel ministry in a sense that we are to make God's word known. We have to be sharing the word of God with others, right? Declaring the gospel to our friends, our families, declaring our gospel to the co-workers, schoolmates. Maybe God's calling you to declare the gospel in another land, another continent. All of us need to place our hope in Christ. In a world that's becoming more and more hopeless, anxiety-ridden, depressed, we are to have our hope in Christ. We are to encourage each other to strive Together to grow more Christ-like. We're called to serve. We're called to suffer. We're called to advance the kingdom of the gospel. Everyone is called to do something with gospel ministry, family. In our men's study on Monday nights, we were talking about what's your spiritual gift? Where does God want you connected? How is God going to use you? We need to find that question out. It's not a matter of pride. It's just this is what God has brought into my life. These are the gifts and talents that God has given me. Here's the circumstances I'm in. Here's the opportunities how do you want to, me to serve 
and live my life in gospel ministry. All of us who are born again are in gospel ministries. I'm going to read a story as the band comes up. Maxie Dunman, he's, uh, he writes a commentary. He tells a story, listen to this story, about a woman in Africa who became a Christian. It says, being filled with gratitude, she was filled with gratitude. She decided to do something for Christ. She was blind, uneducated, and 70 years of age. She came to her missionary, the one who brought her, uh, introduced her to Christ, with her French Bible and asked her to underline John 3.16 in red ink. Mystified, the missionary reached, uh, excuse me, watched her as she took her Bible, sat in front of the boys' school every day. And this 75-year-old woman, a 70-year-old woman, uneducated, blind, had this Bible, John 3.16, under red ink. And what she would do, she would call a couple of boys over and ask them if they knew French. When they proudly responded that they did, she said, would you please read the passage that's underlined in red? And when they did, she would ask, do you know what this means? And she would tell them all about Jesus. The missionary says that over the years, over the years, 24 young men became pastors due to her work, gospel ministry. Family, suffering is inevitable in gospel ministry. Let us be prepared, but let us stand firm on the hope of Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Church, rise up. We have the word of God to share. We have Jesus to make known to everyone, everywhere. Let us stand and pray. Let us stand together. Father, thank you for this time. Father, you know the circumstances we are in. You know the sphere of influence that we are in. You know the gifts and talents that you have given us. Lord, we'll, Lord I want to leave that to you, but we do ask, Holy Spirit, that you will speak to our hearts, that we're not going to sit on the sidelines. We're going to get involved in gospel ministry. Even if it means suffering, we'll do it joyfully knowing that you have a purpose for our life and you have a purpose in the proclamation of the gospel and that is to make Jesus known. That others can have their sins forgiven and others can rejoice in the salvation provided for them in Christ. So give us strength, give us wisdom um, and, and help us, Lord, to, uh, to partake in what you're doing, seeking and saving the lost, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.